0: Good morning again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-seven. Matthew chapter twenty-seven. We'll be reading from verses one to verse twenty-six. Matthew chapter twenty-seven, one through six. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of God says now. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed Him, saw that he had had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood on this day to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept on shouting all the more, saying, Crucify Him. Then Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, He handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we meditate on this text that your spirit would illumine our minds, that we would understand it. Father, there might be someone here who is not saved, Father. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and I pray that today your spirit would convict them of sin. Father, for other of us here Maybe something else is going on where we've uh, distanced ourselves from you, Father. And I pray that through this text and through the Spirit's working, that we will become more like Christ and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back in January uh, of this year, there's a radio station that I listen to that has uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, preaching, and he started in January with... uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I've been at the Gospel of Matthew for a little while now, and I said this, it's going to take him a couple of years to get through this, and last Friday, uh, if you've been listening, he finished up the series on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so he passed me, and he uh, finished before I did, and I was like, man, uh, but we got two chapters, and uh, we're making good headway, so I, I think maybe this year, maybe this year we'll finish up Matthew. Uh, I'm not promising anything, but uh, we might we might get that far. H- have you ever purchased something, and almost as soon as you purchased it, you had some type of remorse about it? L- like you bought the thing, and you thought that, uh, I mean, it looked in the catalog, that uh, it was amazing, it-, it brought happiness, it brought uh, security, uh, but um, you're not so sure now. Or maybe the salesman told you that you would be respected, and And uh, sure enough, you did get respected when you had this thing, but you started noticing that there were people with even nicer things than what you had, and they got even more respect than what you were getting. Or or maybe um, you you saw that uh, if you purchased this thing, it would add value to your life, And, and you thought, wow, if I have this, I'll have value, but then you started noticing that there were some people that had some other things, and they had even more value than you. And you kind of regretted making the purchase. And maybe the purchase wasn't an actual thing, but maybe it was a, a way of thinking, maybe a philosophy, maybe a set of values. You saw somebody have this set of values and and you decided to start working and, and acting like them just to kind of find out that it, it really didn't give you anything. You had remorse about it. Spent all those years doing this certain thing, hoping that you would have this outcome and you didn't get that. You live with this remorse. In the context that we've been looking at here in Matthew, Matthew presented the first trial, which was the Jewish trial, which is the one he holds accountable for Jesus. Now he's going to present another one, but here we saw Peter, and, he, and Peter denied Jesus, but he denied him three times. Each time that he denied Jesus, he took a step further away from Jesus. We see at the end that he is sobbing, he's crying, but there's no repentance, there's no going back, there's no moving in and putting himself beside Jesus. There's an emotion that he's feeling, but it's led him further and further away from from Jesus. Now, let me make a quick application about this. Sometimes we come into people's lives, and uh, they're they're at a, a... a Peter moment right here. I mean, they're low. I mean, they're really low. Or, or maybe you've known someone for a long time, and just at this moment, they're going through something really hard. They, uh, they, they have no faith. They, I mean, they've abandoned the faith. They've taken off. They've messed up. I mean, really messed up. Well, what do you do with this type of people? Well, you might say, well, you distance yourself from this type of person. I mean, let's be honest, dealing with people like Peter is really messy. You're going to get dirty. Who wants to deal with a person like Peter? Definitely don't want to invite him over for Thanksgiving. That would be a mess. But as we look at this, we should move them, help them move towards God. That would be the appropriate thing to do, to get involved in their life and help them grow close to God. Now, this requires a lot of faith. Not faith in yourself and your ability to be able to move that person closer to God, but it requires a lot of faith in God to believe that God can intervene in this person's life as low as they are and restore them, bring them up. It requires a ton of faith in God to be able to help them. Now, if you're going to be involved with a person like Peter, you need a lot of wisdom. I mean, a lot of wisdom. And sometimes as you're going to help that person move closer to God... Uh, It might not be you exactly that it's doing. Uh, For example, if if you're dealing with an alcohol addiction, and uh, the friend you're trying to help is in a bar, and he's drunk, and he's called you, and, and if you were to go in there, all of a sudden you start getting thirsty and salivating, and before you know it, you're there drinking beside the person. It might be better to call somebody else and say, Hey, this is the situation. I need you to go in there and pull this person out. I need to get them back home. It requires a lot of wisdom on how to help that person to be able to minister. But I think as we see in this life of this situation of Peter that we're supposed to move into their lives and help them grow in a relationship with God. Now what we're going to be looking at today is that Christians must move past a remorse and being uninvolved a total surrender to Christ. That's that's what we're going to be looking at. It's fine to have remorse, but you have to move past remorse. And and we might think that being uninvolved in wickedness is good enough, but it's not. It, It requires a total surrender to Christ. And when I say surrender to Christ, that means an abandonment of making life work on my terms and accepting what God has revealed as truth, and putting those into practice. That's what I'm saying when I say surrender. I'm not saying, there was a song a while back, um, it was something about uh, the the, the person was driving, they hit some type of ice, they started skidding, and and then the person cried out that that Jesus needed to to grab the the steering wheel. And sometimes we think, well, that's a total surrender. You, You just steer the car. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about, some, some silliness like that. I'm, I'm talking about an abandonment of trying to make life work on your own and a commitment to following what God has revealed. That, that, that is a surrender to Christ. And it takes a, a focused effort. It's not like, you just do it. No, it's a focused effort where you are studying God's scriptures and see what He's revealing and putting that into practice. Now, the first thing that we see here is that remorse is a good first step, but not the last. Remorse is a first good step, but not the last. As we see here in verses 1 through 10, here come the, uh, the priests, the chief priests and the elders. They, they've conferred, they've gathered around, and they've been talking uh, about Jesus and, and their desire is to put Him to death. And what's interesting as we look at this is that they're all in agreement and uh, they have him bound and they're leading him away to deliver him to Pilate. Now in this idea of having him bound, they've got him tied up. One has to wonder what the purpose of these ropes are. Do they really feel that they somehow have tamed God? Do they really feel that they are in control of the situation, that They're the ones that are are leading Jesus. They're the ones in control. They've got the power. They would be uh, foolish to think that. And we might nervously laugh because we might recognize in ourselves that same idea that somehow we control God. That that maybe somehow we can tame Him. That somehow we can control Him and and manipulate Him to do what we want to do as as they are leading Him to Pilate. No, we're not going to lead Him to Pilate, but we are going to control Him and tame Him so that we can get what we want out of life. And maybe we think through our church attendance. Or maybe through our tithing and our offerings. Or maybe through our prayer life. Or maybe our faith, we think somehow through our faith, we're going to control God and uh, He's going to do what I want. He's going to be bound. He's going to be... But no, all this serves God's purpose. And while they might think that they're in control, they're not. God's in control sovereignly. Has this all planned out? Now, as we see this, they want to give him over to, to Pilate. Uh, Pilate was the um, he was the uh, authority there in um, Jerusalem and Israel. He was under the authority of the governor of Syria. He he usually didn't live in Jerusalem. He had a place over in Caesarea Maritime where he stayed, which if you use the the main roads, highways right now, it's about 73 miles uh, from Caesarea Maritime to Jerusalem. So you could think about a couple days to to do this journey. And uh, at the time of certain festivals, Pilate would go up with uh, troops to Jerusalem because he wanted to establish order. So he doesn't live here, but now he's there with a bunch of soldiers, Roman soldiers, and he's there, and they are bringing Jesus to him. Now, verse 3, it says Judas, who had betrayed him, just to make sure we know which Judas he's talking about, he saw that he had been condemned. Judas saw. Now, you might think, well, there's not too much to the... The verb to see, I mean, you just look at somebody and you perceive something. But this word is an interesting word because it it not only has the idea of perceiving something uh, by by looking at something, but it also has this idea of, of understanding a consequence because of one's actions. It's as if you throw a ball, and there's a window back there, and you throw the ball, and the ball hits the window and it breaks the glass. And all of a sudden your mind goes, Oh no, I broke the window. You know? You all of a sudden acknowledge the fact that your actions had a certain consequence. And this, this is this word that he he saw it, he understands that he's been condemned. And that's on him. What comes out of this is are, are two verbs. Uh, one, a participle, which describes his feeling. It's interesting in biblical narrative, usually you don't have the the emotional feel of the person, of why they're doing what they're doing. Usually it just gives the actions of certain things, but you don't usually find out what's motivating them to do the certain actions, but this is a very unique situation. It says he felt remorse. It's as if he wants to untangle what he's tangled up. He he feels sorry, regret, and it leads him to, to return the 30 pieces of silver. And return, uh, we can imagine, is, is, is pretty simple. If you were doing this with it, it's to change and go in a different direction, to turn, to change your mind, uh, to, to change what you were doing. He, he has this, this uh, remorse, and it doesn't just stay with remorse and like, man, I should not have done that. I guess I'll take this money and go to Cracker Barrel and console myself. No, he, he, he wants to disassociate, uh, disassociate himself with. It's an inward experience where he's, he's changing. And what does he do? He goes and returns the, the money. And, and it says, furthermore, verse 4, it says, I have sinned. Now, we, we know a lot about sin, but this, this verb is, is very interesting. It's, it's only occurred three times in the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, I have sinned. I have committed wrong. I've done something wrong. He confesses that. It's not just a feeling of regret. It's just not a thing of returning and putting the thing. But it's also, he verbalizes what he's done. He he has sinned. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 25 says, Cursed is the one who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. He's violated the law of God, and he understands it, and he confesses what he's done. What's their reply? Oh, well, what do you want us to do about it? You go figure it out. What is that for us? See to it yourself. Go figure out what you're going to do. Judas then he throws the money into the temple, sanctuary. He departed. He went away and hanged himself. Wow. What a change of events. I mean, this is, uh, he goes and he kills himself over this regret that he's having. He's feeling remorse. He, he, He changes his actions where he was doing, he changes it. He then confesses what he's done wrong. And there's a sense of guilt of wanting to undo. Now in, in Rome, they did think that uh, suicide was an honorable way of correcting something that you've done wrong. But even in Roman society, they saw that uh, hanging was something very not so honorable, something not good to do. Uh, here he, he hangs himself. And some see that maybe this is some type of allusion to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17. You remember there in 2 Samuel uh, 17 where Absalom, he... He ends up uh, throwing this coup kudet and he takes over the government and David is off running away and and there he is. He's got the kingdom. He asks uh, Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a very wise man. They say that when Ahithophel spoke, it was like God speaking. I mean, he was that wise. Can you imagine someone being that wise that when he speaks, people say, man, it's like the Lord is speaking. And he asks Ahithophel, uh, what, what should I do? And Hophni said, "Don't don't delay. You grab the forces you've got, take off after David, catch up to him, kill him, and you'll be king." David uh, David has sent uh, uh, Hushai. Hushai, sorry. Uh, he sent Hushai, and um, what what did he suggest? Well, he was on David's side, and so he decides to um, cause a little bit of ripple in Absalom's plans. He says, don't, don't do that. He plays on Absalom's pride. What you need to do is call all of Israel, all the army of Israel. Gather them to Jerusalem. And then as they're all gathered, you march up after David. And then you kill David, and the whole army will see you, and they will all rejoice as you the king. I mean, he played on his pride. And uh, what, what did Absalom do? He followed his advice. Ahithophel, he... Um, He saw that uh, his advice wasn't taken, so he goes home, puts his house in order, and then hangs himself. And some see that that maybe just like Ahithophel, who sees no hope, Judas also sees no hope. But there's some differences between Judas' situation, isn't there? It's not that um, he's expecting... Jesus to come back like David would have come back and settled score. I mean, David David ended up settling the score. He even got Solomon. After David died, Solomon was still killing people that had been involved in this mess. It's not that Jesus would have done that. So what's the difference here? I mean, Judas recognized his error. He repented. He confessed. As we see as this uh, narrative progress, there's the money in the sanctuary of the temple and the elders, the, the priest. they're there having to debate what to do with these funds. They can't put it in the treasury. So they decide to buy a field and, and the potter's field and they're going to, all the foreigners, all the strangers, they're going to go and, and bury there. They're outside of where normal good Jews were buried. That's what they decide to do with the funds. Now, Remorse is a good first step, but it shouldn't be the last. Judas should have taken a step towards Christ. That's what he should have done. Judas should have taken a step towards Christ. As we look at this, the text is set in such a way that you have a trial, another trial, and then between the two trials you have Peter's denial and Judas. That's how Matthew has structured this. His literary strategy is to put the two trials as bookends to the two Uh, situation of of Peter and Judas in the middle. As we look at this, Peter, he he denied Jesus. Three times denied Jesus. And with each denial, he he moves away from Jesus. And at the end, he's just crying. He's got this bitter cry. But there's no confession. He he doesn't say what he's done wrong. There's no change in attitude. There's no going to Jesus. Jesus. Now, on Judas, his reaction is different. There is a feeling that he has, which is regret. He, he's done the wrong thing. Not only does he regret, but he, he makes some actions that show a, a change of heart. And instead of keeping the money, he goes and turns it in. He goes back. He wants to change, rectify a situation. Not only does he do that, but he confesses what he's done wrong. He doesn't just uh, say, well, you know, we all, we all make mistakes, you know, m- m- my bad, you know. He, he says what he's done. He confesses what he's done. But, even with all this, Peter ends up getting praised and Judas despised. For some, Peter is considered the head of the church, and others In other countries of the world, every year they put hay and fireworks inside of clothes and then they light it on fire and they say it's Judas and it blows up and burns down. Every year they do that. Why is Peter accepted and Judas despised? I mean, between the two actions, I I would much rather have those of Judas that come and tell me that they're sorry, make restitution, confess their wrongdoing, I mean, it really doesn't help me for somebody to just go take off running, crying. You're like, what are they doing? I don't know what they're doing over there. Between the two actions, I would much rather prefer those of Judas. But what's the difference? The difference is at the end, Peter ends up going to Jesus in Galilee and is restored. Whereas Judas tried to deal with his own problem himself. And that that makes all the difference. Jesus can restore the worst of people, even Peter. But you have to take steps to Jesus. It it takes a surrender to Jesus. It it means abandoning your plans, abandoning what you think is right, abandoning what you are hoping for, surrendering all that and obeying what he's revealed. Well, how do I make a five-year plan on that? Well, you don't. How how do I project in 10 years where I'm going to be? Just keep on obeying. Keep surrendering your plans and keep on obeying what he's revealed here. The difference between the two is that Peter ends up going to Jesus. Now, as we think about this also, we have to be careful of your righteousness. Be careful of your righteousness. We see in this situation that the priest the priest can't even imagine taking the, the money. He said, no, that, that's blood money. We can't accept that. But on the other side, they have no problem at all killing an innocent man. I mean, this is just incredible. That, that doesn't even make sense. How is it that you can't accept the money, but you're okay with killing somebody innocent? See, sometimes we mess up. Uh, uh, we have this view of righteousness because we're driven by our desires and not by principle. That's what their their desire is to have Jesus killed, and so they're not driven by their principles of what they know about God, but rather they're driven by their desire. They want what they want, so they will do what they do to get what they want. And many Christians also live according to their desires rather than based on principles. Many Christians live day-to-day, week-by-week, based on whatever they desire, instead of on what's, what's found in God's Word. It, it makes them to be incredibly pragmatic. I mean, incredibly pragmatic. Evangelism, how does evangelism look like? Uh, well, we want to see decisions. So how do we make decisions? Let's offer free ice cream. If People love ice cream. If you come forward and fill out a card, you get free ice cream. Hot dog. We're going to start getting some cards filled out now. How about worship services? Oh, we send out some cards and ask everybody around here what type of music they like. Then we get Charles to start doing all that stuff. But no question is asked at all if this honors God. Why? Because we want to have our desire rather than live on principle. How about preaching? Well, we turned preaching into a bunch of TED talks, 10 minutes long. And and they gotta be practical. Five steps to a better marriage. And if you can include a sixth step that makes you lose weight, hot dog. You know? But talking about the character of God, that's not practical. Talking about the attributes of God, his holiness, oh no. How is that gonna help me with my boss? He's so annoying. And nobody wants that. They want a little 10-minute TED Talk. We become very pragmatic when we start being driven by desire rather than by principle. And that's what they're doing. They can't fathom taking the money, but they have absolutely no problem killing an innocent person. Why? Because they're driven by desire rather than principle. People start making all types of weird rules when they live by their desires. I mean, crazy. You can't do this, but you can do this. you're like, what? Really? Oh, yeah. Why? Because they're driven by desire rather than by principles. Now, the second point, we saw that remorse is good for a first step, but not for the last. The second point is being uninvolved is really only being involved in self. Uh, Being involved in self. When you try to disassociate yourself, all you're really saying is that I'm about me. That's that's all you're saying. We see here in verses 11 through 26 that, that Pilate is making an effort. He's making a strong effort to to try to get out from being involved with this. He doesn't want to touch it. They bring him before the governor, and, and uh, he starts to question them. He says, so you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, he doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no, he just says... It's as you say. What are you supposed to do with that? I mean, what are you going to do with that? So then all the people start accusing him. This, this must have blown Pilate's mind. To This is nothing like he's ever experienced. Here's a guy being uh, threatened and, and told of all types of stuff. He's supposed to be put to death, and he doesn't answer a word. He's like a lamb to the slaughter. And he's even trying to get him to say something, but he won't say a thing. Nothing at all. Pilate thinks he can squirm out of this. He says he remembers this thing that he used to do where he's going to let somebody go. They've got a, as it says there in verse 16, a notorious prisoner. They have a notorious prisoner and uh, they have Jesus Christ. Who, who should we let go? And Pilate understands, as it says there in verse 18, that it's because of envy that they handed Jesus over. It's just envy. Envy over him. Not that he's actually done anything wrong. It's envy. They want Barabbas. Verse 19 says that he's there sitting in the trial, and his wife uh, sent him a message. Who knew that there was texting back there, huh? Sends him a message and tells him, this guy's a righteous man. Don't don't touch him. Don't, don't mess with him. I had a terrible night's sleep. I kept on dreaming because of him. I suffered greatly, it says. And he's trying to squirm out. He's trying to just not be involved in this. He doesn't want to touch this. But he can't. There he is, Jesus, standing in front of them. He won't defend himself. He won't give him a reason for letting them go. The people are there accusing him. Not only are they accusing them, but it says there that they start crying out, Crucify him, verse 22. And he's, Pilate's still trying to wonder, what, what evil has he done? What, what, what wrong has he done? They're not going to give an answer. Rather, they're going to turn the situation into a riot, as it says in verse 24. A riot. Rome liked their peace. And having a riot just did not set well on Pilate's resume. I mean, that would have not have been good at all. So he's got to do something to bring about peace. He washes his hands, and it says very interestingly that um, he washes his hands and uh, and says that the blood will be on their hands. He's innocent of all this. Now, it's kind of interesting because they accept that the blood will be on their hands. And two things are are evident of here. The first is that they are going to understand that they're guilty. They're, they're going to be guilty. But the other thing is that they're going to say something theologically accurate, but not understand the implications of it. Uh, this can be seen, done, when uh, Caiaphas said in John 11.50, Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. He, he, he didn't know what he was saying theologically. He thought he was just saying it's better that Jesus die than All of us get killed. But he didn't understand the implications, the theological implications. And here they're going to say, his blood shall be on us and our children. But they don't understand what that means. They don't have a clue. For for who did Christ die? Was it for the Jews? Only for the Jews? Was it only for a, a group of good people? People that deserved it? people that don't crucify him? Well, it says in 1 John 2.2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He he settled, he appeased God's wrath, and not our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. In in case we're wondering, well, who is the whole world? Peter gives that reply in in 2 Peter 2.1. In 2 Peter 2.1 it says, But false prophets also arose among the people. If you highlight in your Bible, highlight false prophets, uh, just as there will also be false teachers among you. There has been and there will be who secretly introduce destructive heresies. So they're actively involved in this, even denying the master who bought them. What? Christ's blood even pays for false teachers? It does. Do they understand theologically what it means that they have the blood? No. Their hearts are hardened and turned against God. Will they accept the payment? No. Will they put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross? No, their hearts are hardened. Could it have saved them? Oh, yes. It could have saved them of their sins. They could have had a relationship with God. They don't know what they're saying. Theologically, they assume the guilt. As we look at this, being uninvolved is really only being involved in self. The the uncommitted to Christ become committed to the crowds. That's what this shows us here. Being uncommitted to Christ become uh, the uncommitted to Christ, become committed to the crowds. Uh, Pilate doesn't want to associate himself with, with Jesus. He wants to distance himself. But as he's distancing himself, he's going to favor the crowd. Pilate doesn't want a riot. He wants peace. I mean, you can relate to that, that desire to have peace. There goes your wife again, making a big deal over nothing. You just want to try to calm her down. There he goes again. He, he, he's had a bad day at work. Uh, all his coworkers are non-thinking persons. Only he thinks. He's reaching for the third beer. You, you know how the night's going to end. All you want is peace. Peace in the house. At that moment, you have to decide, are you going to live according to your desire to have peace? Or are you going to live on biblical principles? he will make a decision based on his desire rather than on biblical principles. And so he'll side with the crowd. When you don't commit to Jesus, you'll eventually side with the crowd. You can't just stay in the middle and be like, no, I'm I'm undecided, because you'll gravitate to the crowd. And that's what Pilate does. Because he's living for his desire, he's not living for biblical principle. Now, you have to be very, very careful with your desires. You have to be extremely careful with your desires. In James 4, 1 through 2, it says, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What, what motivates all the fights and the quarrels? It's the desires. Your desire is to just be driving your car. And if someone has a desire behind you to get ahead of you, and they get ahead of you, and they cut you off. And now your desire to show them that they were wrong, and you want to give them certain signs with your hands, good Christian signs, right? Tell them what you think. Or or in marriages. In your marriage, uh, what happens? Uh, she, She wants to... To remodel the house. He he wants to turn the garage into one of those man caves. That's the weirdest thing I've seen here in Texas is um, those people that sit out in their garage with the TV. It's so hot here. Like, why not go inside where the AC's at? But they'll do that. He wants a garage that's a man cave. She wants something else. And there's conflict. What's the conflict over? Personal desires. Families same happens. How about in church? One person wants to put in a new ice skating rink here on the property. It would be great. We can attract people. It, it, all the people that come from Canada to spend the winters here, we'll attract we'll them. They'll come to our church. Somebody else wants to spend for every dollar we spend here, we want to send another dollar over to the mission field. So if we have an annual budget of $100,000, we're raising actually $200,000, and $100,000 we're sending over to the mission field. What? How are we going to have an ice skating rink if we're sending $100,000 over to the mission field? Oh, there'll be conflict, wouldn't there? There'll be big... I'm leaving this church for a church that will give me an ice skating rink. Oh, well, there'll be all types of problems. What causes the problems? People living by Desire rather than on biblical principle. It happens in the family, happens in marriage, happens on the road, and it happens in church. When people decide to live by their desires rather than biblical principles. Christians must move past remorse. Remorse is a good thing. Please, please don't think, um, don't skip over remorse. You should have remorse when you sin. But remorse should take you to a surrender to Christ. You should move past uninvolvement, un- uncommitted. and You should have a total surrender to Christ. Now maybe you're thinking about your life and you're thinking about stuff that you've purchased or maybe ideas that you've bought and you've had remorse. Judas had remorse, but he should not have just stayed with the remorse. He should have gone to Christ. Pilate should have gone to Christ. Surrendered his desire for peace and and accepted Christ as the king, king of the Jews, king of the world. As we look at this, we might be thinking about our own life. Maybe you can't have this uh, uh, close walk with Christ because you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you said a prayer at one time, but as you look at the evidence of your life, there is actually no fruit, no growth. In fact, you can sin and you feel no remorse at all. That, that shows a problem. Maybe you say, I, I just don't want to be involved in that stuff. I, I've got my career that I'm working on right now. I've got my education. I've got my kids. They're young. I really want to focus on that. Um, I, my parents were a, a, a total mess up. I, I want to be there for my kids. Yeah, you know, I just don't have time for this Jesus stuff right now. Christians must do a total surrender to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we examine this text and we think about it in our own lives, I I pray, Father, that we will live a surrendered life. Father, a surrendered life is a life that studies your word and lives on your principles, not on desire. I, I pray that if someone's here is not saved, that they will accept Christ as their Savior, that they'll repent of their sins, Father, I pray for other of us here who maybe we've been living just for desire, that we can repent of that and live for your principles. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing.